Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, just in time for the holidays. Get $5 off the Winter Winston model, even if you're a returning customer. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code THEGISTHOLIDAY. That promo code again, THEGISTHOLIDAY. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 11th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasco. Well, we got to know the Cromnibus today. That's the name for the Combined Continuing Resolution, CR, and the Omnibus Spending Bill. A report on the Cromnibus came on the radio, which said, without this continuing resolution, the government could run out of money. And my alarmed seven-year-old looked at me and said, what do you mean the government's going to run out of money? I'm like, yes, that sounds bad, but believe me, it's not that bad. I mean, all that's going to happen is they're going to close a park or two. And at that, my six-year-old perked up, close a park? No, no. I mean like a park like Yellowstone, a park far away, far away from your slide and your climbing apparatus. That remains unimperiled. I guess you could say my six-year-old son is a swing voter. Swing? Okay, terrible joke, but Cromnibus. Is that a good name? Don't you think it should be a Transformer if his name is Cromnibus? It's a little disappointing. I do give it credit for taking two extremely boring things, continuing resolution and omnibus spending bill, and making it sound exciting. I don't know if this would work in other walks of life where you take two unexciting things and you portman two of them together and they become more exciting than the original. Let's try it. Mitch McConnelly Frittato. Huh? Huh? The Senate Majority Leader wants you to know that if he does turn off the light, it won't be out of a misplaced environmentalism. Or how about this one? Coconut water world. In a world gone mad, Kevin Costner can deliver a kind of disgusting beverage to the only hope humanity has. All right, I got a really good one. Canajamabama, the exciting blend of the coldness of Canada, the heat of an Alabama summer, all brought together by the gripping intensity of the Journal of the American Medical Association. That's Canajamabama. On the show today, the spiel, don't eat just yet. And then maybe you saw a vine of me shotgunning a beer with a fine Shakespearean actor. No, that wasn't just any old raucous Thursday. It was an exercise in drunk Shakespeare. But first, I argue with one of my favorite Wall Street Journal op-ed writers about America's strength. He says not that strong. I say pretty strong. America is in retreat. It doesn't mean it's in decline. It doesn't mean it's falling apart, but it's in retreat. That is the premise of the book titled America in Retreat, the New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. The author, Brett Stevens, is a writer for the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed columnist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he joins me now. Hello, Brett. How are you, Mike? I'm well, thank you. Now, I have read your book, and I've been reading your columns, and I've been reading your Wall Street Journal review items, and I did note that the other day there was an article that you wrote about applying something like the broken windows theory to international action. Well, very quickly, the idea of broken windows is that the work of police is best served when they're in the business of enforcing order 
rather than reacting to disorder. And so police work ought to be about setting norms. It ought to be about creating a sense of presence, police presence. It's about reassuring law-abiding citizens, deterring people who might be tempted to get up to no good and occasionally punishing uh, the wicked. And something analogous, I think, works in foreign policy, too. I, I mean, I explicitly make the argument of the book that the U.S. should be the world's policeman. We're the only country that can do it. We wouldn't like any of the alternatives. And if we're going to be the world's policeman, something like the broken windows model could serve us well. We should be in the business of reassuring our allies that we have the will and the wherewithal to defend them so they won't be tempted to become foreign policy freelancers and do things we might not like or might ultimately involve us against our will. We ought to be able to deter countries like Russia, China, Iran. And from time to time, we need to enforce certain rules of the road, not to um, change or uh, win hearts and minds, but to enforce certain modes of behavior, certain expectations, certain red lines that the Bashar of the Assad's of the world must know cannot be crossed and for which they'll have to pay uh, real consequences if they do cross them. So my critique of that would be not that these outcomes wouldn't be desirable. It's just that it's so hard to get there. And in fact, so often in your book, uh, I see you describing perhaps President Obama's reaction to international policy as indifference or reluctance. But I see it more as realism, a topic you also talk about in your book. And it's not that the end goal isn't a good one. It's just that achieving the end goal, history has shown us, has been extremely hard, if not in some cases, impossible. Well, there is no end state in politics. I mean, the great British philosopher Michael Oakeshott makes that point. There is no solution. You are constantly in the business of mowing the lawn, right? You always have to sort of make sure that uh, order is asserted over the forces of disorder. Take a situation like Syria, Mike, okay? You know, this began for six months as a peaceful revolt against the tyrannical regime of Bashar Assad. And uh, Obama very studiously decided he was going to stay away from it. I think actually in the expectation that Assad was about to uh, fall. So now you have a problem in, you have in Syria what, you know, if I may sort of use an oncological metaphor, we've gone from a stage one cancer that could have been taken out at low cost to us to a stage four cancer where, you're, where we're involved anyway, because now American equities are at stake in, in Iraq with ISIS and so on. But the problem is that much more difficult to contain. So I would make the argument that if we had not allowed those red lines to be crossed, if we had not allowed Syria to become this mind-boggling problem from hell, we might have had a much better outcome than the one we have now. But the problem with the metaphor is that some kinds of cancers are curable, and it's not clear that Assad was. I mean, maybe it was a pancreatic cancer where you could have given it radiation, but the patient still would have died, or you could have done watchful waiting, but the patient still would have died. And the CAA has come out with a report that says the preferred mode of intervention, i.e. arming the good rebels, never works. They had one example where it maybe worked, which was the Mujahideen, and I would submit that that didn't work. So this is the problem of Syria. Well, look, I mean, if you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you, Mike, God forbid, right? Uh, okay. You're going to act on it really fast. Mm -hmm. All right. You're not going to sit around and say, well, maybe it's incurable. So why bother intervening? Who knows? Probably it won't do me a, a bit of good. And it's just going to cost me or my insurer a lot of money. And, and what's, what's the point? Just 
That's that's what, what you would you would not prescribe that for yourself. Secondly, I mean, citing the CIA as an authority on any subject, I think is um, how shall I say it. Uh, um, misjudged. Put it this way, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, the, the late great senator of New York, intelligence should not be mistaken for intelligence. <laughs> but okay, so where's a case where arming the good rebels has worked? I mean, I'm, I'm glad that the Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan. I'm glad the Soviet Union is no more. Were there consequences to that? Of course. Do we know that there wouldn't have been consequences anyway? I mean, the Mujahideen came up or began against uh, the Afghans irrespective of what we did. And yeah, and then we had to deal with other problems. As I said, there are no ultimate answers uh, in global politics. You go from, you sail through storm, from storm to storm. That's the reality of political life. Yes. So here we have in President Obama, can be any president, he has choices presented to him. You could either intervene or non-intervene. Go to war, commit troops, don't commit troops. What is the way to do that, to make those choices without giving the signal to either opponents or people in the middle that you're weak. Yeah, look, I mean, there are virtues to strategic restraint, okay? And the menu of options between doing nothing or next to nothing or just giving a speech and sending in the 3rd Infantry Division ought to be a, a large menu. I mean, part of our problem in this country is that we think that any sort of intervention is going to be another Iraq war. Um, and that's part of, the, I think, the toxic legacy of the Iraq war, that it has, uh, it has somehow persuaded Americans that every conceivable intervention is going to be a disaster. Uh, there are options for a president uh, that are calibrated, that are strategic, that show that you're prepared to use force, but prepared to use force in limited ways that can achieve real effects. But we have to find a foreign policy that finds a middle road between the overcommitments of the Bush administration and, in my view, the uh, reactiveness and inactiveness of the Obama administration. And that's what I'm trying to do, a, a Goldilocks recipe between the porridge that's too hot and the porridge that's too cold. Brett Stevens is author of America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Thank you so much, Brett. Thanks a lot, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for pushing back. Harry's is more than a razor. It's a razor and a handle and a very special offer for people who've already received their very special offer. Wait a minute, Harry's. You can't call every offer very special. Well, maybe they can. Listen to this. $5 off the Winter Winston, even for returning customers. Harry's is gifting all listeners of my show $5 off with the promo code THEGISTHOLIDAY. Yeah, even if you're a loyal Harry's user, even if you've used our promo code or any other promo code before or paid full price for your introductory offer, now you're going to get $5 off a Winter Winston set with the promo code THEGISTHOLIDAY. It includes a razor, three quality blades, a tube of their foaming gel, or their shave cream for just $25. There are lots of sets when you go to harrys.com. They start at $15 bucks. Shipping is always free with Harry's. It's the gift that gives back. Harry's donates 1% of sales and 1% of their employees' time volunteering. Go to harrys.com. $5 off a Winter Winston set with the code THEGISTHOLIDAY. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, to be or not to be. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Shakespeare wrote all that. Here's something he never wrote. Chug, 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 chug. But that's all changing thanks to a new innovation, really the greatest thing to happen to theater since they 
purged it of all those puppet shows. Drunk Shakespeare is a phenomenon. It's hit New York City. It combines bars and the bard. And the creators and actors behind Drunk Shakespeare are here with me. We have Josh Hyman, who performs in a show. Hello, Josh. Hey, how's it going? And Adam Thomas Smith, who I saw as Macbeth. Hey, how's it going? Scott Griffin, who is a producer and co-creator of the show. Hi. He's Australian. David Hudson, director and co-creator of the show. Hello. David, take me to the germination of this idea. Where did it start? Scott uh, approached uh, the three of us. My my wife and a friend of ours started a theater company called Three Day Hangover uh, that produced classic plays and bars. Uh, we did a production of Romeo and Juliet in the fall of last year. Scott approached us afterwards and was like, I got this great idea about uh, getting an actor drunk on stage and performing some Shakespeare. What do you think? And from there, we, we kind of spent uh, a couple of months pulling together the idea, doing the cut of the script. We received over 1,300 submissions from actors Yeah. Uh, after our postings on Playbill and backstage uh, breakdowns. And I think we're at show 2.15-ish, 2.10, 2.15 now. Wow. Um, Adam, you are the main drunk in the show. So what are the rules of the show? Uh, that's uh, almost correct. I was yeah. the main drunk the night that you were there. Okay. But we actually rotate who the drunk actor is uh, every night. So it can be me, it can be any of the other actors, except for Josh here, because as the master of ceremonies, he kind of has to keep everybody in line. So he doesn't have to. But Also, I'm 5'3", and after two shots, I'm on the floor <laughs> sleeping. So that's yeah, a problem. Because this is one of the first times that auditions were based on, you know, memorizing lines and voice projection, but also blood alcohol level. Exactly. Ability to hold your liquor. I can say when we had the auditions, we had people unasked turn up crack open, you know, a beer, yeah. down the full beer, and then start a Shakespearean yeah. monologue. We definitely had one girl chug an entire bottle of white wine. And then do a <laughs> it was kind of incredible, oh actually. Well, how did you do that? How did you find out that they actually could drink? I mean, what if these people were terrible fall-down drunks, <laughs> if not great actors? You want Peter O'Toole is what you want. Yes. He's the idea. Actually, we had one person who provided a resume yes. yeah. from her friends to certify what she was like when she was drunk. It you was know, I've known Samantha for 10 years, and you know, five of those she's been drinking, and this is... <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. You know, we spent a lot of time in the auditions. Um, it was very atypical. I mean, we saw, the, we saw the monologues. We saw some improvs. We did that stuff. But we spent a lot of time talking to people and finding out what they were like, um, finding out kind of what their personality was, because I think you get a good sense of somebody's personality, and when they're drinking, typically that's heightened. Now, we actually didn't test anyone to see if they were a mean drunk or yeah. an angry drunk. <laughs> well, you don't want like a mean that. drunk. You don't want an angry drunk. You want an iambic pentameter drunk, yes, and that's exactly. a rare thing, <laughs> yes. but there it is. Adam, Adam Thomas Smith is said <laughs> iambic pentameter drunk. All right, how much drinking do you do during a show when you're the main drunk? Um, per show, there's uh, four shots at the top of the show. I usually have a drink or two beforehand. Uh, there's at what? least two more what? shots during. You well, pre-drink? Yeah, I like to be a little bit. in a sort of a sort of like a buzzed little place when the audience gets there because, frankly, it makes me more personable. So okay. <laughs> I'll chat with them better that way. So there's the pre-show drink or two, four shots, a couple more during the show based on you know the audience's opinion. And I usually, as you know, at one point in the show, challenge someone to shotgun a beer. Shotgun a beer. Yeah. And you do two shows a night. On Fridays and Saturdays, yeah. We do two shows a night. And if you're the drunk actor on one of those nights, you're the drunk actor for two shows. So 16 shots, 16, 
bits of alcohol. Something like Wait, that. Hold on. Do you pregame for the second show? No. Okay, <laughs> we, do, we do have lots of safety in mind always. Mm-hmm. We adjust the shots in the second show so that it's not four shots at the top because they've already done an entire thing. So they take one with the audience and, and get going with that. So it's not usually 16, but it definitely is upwards of 10, yeah. 10 to 12. This is the uh, only show the where the audience is like, the Friday second show actors are out of control. <laughs> you cannot deal with Friday late shows. They've been drinking since they got off work. The audiences are the yeah. ones who've been drinking since they've been. They're just as good as we are. Yeah. How much of the play do you do? It seems a quarter to a third of the lines. I would say it's around forty percent of the play. I mean, we really select the storyline we're yeah. following. Yeah. yeah. I would. The cut is probably it's down to about forty pages out of the original script. So I would say it's about a third to a half. Right, but that's not all you get because it's embellished with games and fun and references. Some of the stuff is improv. Some of the stuff has to be memorized also. Sure, yeah. So is remembering the lines really hard when you're buzzed? You know what? It was at first. It's the toughest thing. Um, But then it really does sort of become a reflex. You know, you get so used to doing it. I've personally done over 50 or so shows. uh, So I know those lines backwards and forwards. I know them drunk. Um, but when it re- what really gets tricky is when we start to change it up. You know, when we start doing an improv or we go yeah. into a different bit, that's when it's clear that I'm absolutely inebriated because I just I'll get through the Shakespeare and people are like, oh, he's not drunk at all, and then I'll you know try to talk during an improv and I'm just game over. <laughs> ah! And now, Josh, you're the MC. You're kind of most interacting with the audience, right? So yeah. what 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 have some audience members done because they're encouraged to get drunk? What have you come across? Everything. They come and they as soon as they see what's going on that there is not a regular stage and we're going to be performing among them, on top of them, behind them, under them. I'm pretty sure I gave you a lap dance at some point. <laughs> yeah, right? but that's just because we're friends, right? Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, <laughs> as we I, call that Thursday. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually <laughs> sitting on Michael's lap right now. Um, <laughs> my one friend came and he was like listen do not get me involved in anything right by right. the end of the night he was sitting on one on the drunk actor's lap and he had his shirt off taking pictures with him like together like every, people just want to be involved and i think we give them that opportunity to do that do you consider this a legit theater experience is this theater and yeah, not to get academic but it, it, the shakespeare of shakespeare's era was the shakespeare of the groundlings which was loud and messy and involved a lot of drinking was and there eating. drinking there oh yeah yeah down in the down in the uh, in the groundlings area down low i mean hours and hours of of drinking and eating and if they didn't like something they would throw it at the actors oh, yeah. you know all yeah. of that stuff the still to happens. be a, still, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's to be a to be a elizabethan actor uh, you had to have serious uh, the serious ability to kind of manage and control a crowd which these guys all do uh, extraordinarily well to do as well all right so now is the time in my show in my life we don't often get second chances set us this actually happened i was there i was just a civilian in the audience someone shotguns a beer against you right yeah, uh, as part of the show, as, as the drunk actor, there are a couple things called the drunk actor check-in. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a privilege that the king or queen for the night has where they can stop the show at any And the any king point. or queen's an audience member who bids on who that bids right on and the says, right to you get drink, that. Yeah. you, yeah. And once they've won that right, uh, uh, in addition to a bunch of other things, they get the ability to stop the show twice for whatever reason they feel, check in with the drunk actor, and then the drunk actor has to do challenges based on that stop. 
uh, one of my challenges is occasionally shotgunning a beer against an audience member as a race, which uh, which we got to do together, didn't we? Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, and what are you doing at that time, Josh? I am, I'm basically, you know, managing it and setting it up. I'm uh, making sure I'm finding the person you were like, you jumped up. <laughs> you were, I want to shotgun a beer. I was like, all right, he's with a girl. I guess he's going to show off right now. That's what happened. It worked. And, uh, it worked. Uh, good for you. I hope that's working out. Anyway, so the two of you, right, you, you know, we set it up. We got everyone paying attention and focused on what the actual, uh, you know, physical challenge is. And then, you know, one, two, three, Shakespeare, and, and boom, you were drinking. You want to do it again? Hell yeah. All right. Let's go. <laughs> we got a Takati. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> hey, ladies and gentlemen, that's our first drunk actor check-in bell. It is a physical challenge. Does anybody here know how to shotgun a beer, Michael? In fact, I do. Excellent. Well, you're going to go against Adam right now, who is Bring now, it on. Way, who is now unbuttoned most of the buttons on his shirt. This is how it works in the show. My shirt's normally half off I am holding on to his now. nipples Get right out of here. Okay. Here we go. On the count of three. One, two, three. Go. Come on. Get there, Mike. Get there, Mike. Get there, Adam. Adam. Go, go, go. Come on. Oh, Michael wins! Oh, the rematch! Oh, redemption! It's, it's sweet like, redemption! I'm so shamed right now. We'll, well see done. you for the triple rematch in Las Vegas next Mike year. And, oh, Juliet Bell. and Romeo wanted Juliet. Juliet wanted Romeo. And Romeo wanted Juliet. And Juliet wanted Romeo. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age, the seven wonders of the modern world. Unlike the architectural monuments of antiquity, the great achievements of today are made possible by systems, infrastructure, and technologies that are, for the most part, invisible. To find out more, go to slate.com slash seven wonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. This series was made possible by GE. Outside the streets were steaming, the crack dealers were dreaming, and they're using someone at the score. And now the spiel, having it your way. Headline, nut spat. Nut spat delays Korean air flight. Well, what, what happened? Did the spat nut land in the cockpit? Did it distract the pilot? Did it cause a kerfuffle? No, no, no. The story is about a Korean airline executive who forced the plane to turn around at JFK. Turn around because she was served nuts in a bag, not on a plate. She also happened to be the daughter of the guy who runs Korean Airlines. So, yeah, maybe she had a little more juice. And if she had a little more juice, it would have stayed at the terminal for hours. Anyway, most English language news didn't go with nut spat. They went with some variation of nuts about nuts. That was the headline in English language media. But what of Korean language? I checked. Does nuts mean insane, bonkers, crazy, a few chili peppers short of real beep and bop? No, it does not in Korean. Nuts just pretty much means nuts. So the Korean headlines went Tankunpanan? Okay, I got a Google pronunciation on that. It just means peanut return. Peanut return. Still, they had a field day with it. But another having it your way news, McDonald's is doing poorly. The company believes its menu has gotten, are you ready? What word do you think I'm going to use? It's gotten too confusing. That's right. Like defending the Rui Lopez opening in chess or decoding the latest Christopher Nolan film, McDonald's customers are flummoxed by the combinations of meat, chicken, cheese, and bread. 
But you know what? I thought this was totally ridiculous. Then I realized I haven't actually been in a McDonald's in a long, long time. Going to a McDonald's does seem like a thing that we've all done fairly recently, even if we hadn't, right? It's like watching Scott Pelley host the CBS Evening News. Have I really watched Scott Pelley host the CBS Evening News? It seems like I have, but maybe I haven't. Just that sense memory or that expectation kicks in. Or like shooting a guy in the back of the head when he's in the driver's seat. I don't think I've done it, but I kind of know what's going to happen, right? He slumps forward, hits his head with the horn, and wah. Anyway, back to McDonald's. The menu, I went and checked it out. Is it really confusing? Printed out all their menu offerings. They, it's five pages, six tiny little sandwiches. I mean, so small, you can't even see the tomatoes. Okay, that's true in real life also. Six sandwiches, nine lines a page. Turns out there are over 200 menu items listed. And this is why news items have the chain saying we are reducing the number of items, meaning instead of four quarter pound options, consumers will have one. According to McDonald's spokeswoman Becca Harry, the quote, cleaner menu board is being tested in several locations in the U.S. Now, I read that quote and I thought they just meant speckled with grease splatterings. No, no, no. This was a figurative cleaner menu board reference. They're eliminating some menu items. So here I have a couple of McDonald's menu items, and let's see what the overlap is. Andrea? Yeah. You have in front of you a McDonald's menu item, as do I, and we are now going to list ingredients. What is the name of your item? I will be reading for the Premium Crispy Chicken Club Sandwich. And I will be reading for the Bacon Clubhouse Crispy Chicken Sandwich. Okay, what's your first ingredient? Crispy Chicken Filet. Crispy Chicken Filet. We have that too. Bakery Style Bun. Artisan Roll. Slight difference. Okay. Tomato Slice. Tomato Slice. Thick Cut Applewood Smoked Bacon. See, the Bacon Clubhouse has Thick Cut Applewood Smoked Bacon. Same thing, yeah. That's the same thing, yeah. Swiss Cheese. Pasteurized Processed White Cheddar Cheese. Mayonnaise. Big Mac sauce. Leaf lettuce. Caramelized grilled onions. Hmm. So really, what's the difference? A different kind of cheese and mine's got onions. It's confusing. Just put one on the menu and say, I want it without onions. And then you've got your crispy chicken club sandwich. In England, when they fire someone, it's called made redundant. These menu items from McDonald's are already redundant. Okay, last piece of eating news. I was going through the restaurant news roundup of new menu items, and I came across a winner. The restaurant in question is the Tilted Kilt. What is the Tilted Kilt? Well, it's sort of a Celtic-themed Hooters. Hooters being a food-themed strip club. The Tilted Kilt is what's known in a category of restaurants. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It is a restaurant. The girls are scantily clad. And here are the new menu items. First, they come out with the pint o' fries. All right, I mean, pints are supposed to count fluids, fries not. I'd have gone with the hot pot of tater tots, but this is not my field. I'm not a big restaurant guy. Then the Tilted Kilt starts trading in foods that seem fine except when put together, like corned beef and cabbage. All right. Spring rolls. Not all right. And then whiskey. All right. Beef. Not all right. Here is the whiskey beef description. Irish whiskey marinated beef skewers, griddled and served with spicy mustard and Samuel Adams Boston Lager Demi Glaze. 
Samuel Adams demiglaze. We have to stop this trend, people. If it takes hold, then the next menu item will be vodka pork served in a reduction of four loco, which will, of course, usher in a Zima venison puff pastry served with a Mike's Hard Lemonade compote. People, stand up to the restaurants if you can still stand up at all. And that's it for today's show. Friends, Romans, countrymen, Andrea Salenzi, me your ears. A horse, a horse. Managing producer of Slate Podcast, Joel Meyer Kingdom for a horse. It is the East. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is the sun. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. We are on the app Yo today and only today. I wish it were called Hark. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. To end in a couplet, we'll save this day from being aimless. Ah, to revel in true poetics as I swig the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Thanks for listening. <laughs>